come this Lord's Day to continue in our discussion of the power of God to save His people. Jonah teaches us that salvation belongs to the Lord. As Christ explained to Nicodemus, spiritually dead lost people cannot see the kingdom of God unless they're first born again by the power of the Holy Ghost. In fact, it takes a miracle from God for people to believe the gospel. Just as God worked a powerful work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh to bring them to believe His Word and cry out for mercy, so too it is necessary for the Holy Ghost to work the conversion of poor dead sinners to believe God's Word. When Jesus cast out the demon from the desperate man's son, He emphasized the importance of faith to believe God's Word for salvation. Jesus made sure that the complete hopelessness of the son was evident to us all. Jesus told the poor boy's father that the key to his rescue was faith, but who can believe God's Word? Even we believers often fail to do so. The desperate boy's father expressed the dilemma when he cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Here's the crucial fact. The Holy Ghost must take away our unbelief if we are to believe gospel truth and be saved. We must be granted faith by the power of the Holy Ghost's work of conversion in our hearts. Only then by faith can we lay hold of the gospel. Right after Christ healed the poor son, He taught His disciples how He must be killed by wicked men and rise again the third day. But they were very sad and wouldn't believe Him. Even though they had just seen the poor boy's father granted faith to believe Christ's promise, and then seen Christ's power to cast out vile demons from His Son. How can one with such great power be taken and put to death? If He has total power over the material and spiritual world, how can He be killed? And if Christ is killed, how can He save anyone? How can a dead man rescue us from anything? If all that calamity happens, how can Christ rise again from the grave? The disciples ought to have cried out to Christ to help their unbelief. But note well that Christ Himself believed the promise of His Father in Psalm 16 that He would not leave His soul in hell nor suffer His Holy One to see corruption. God's promises were set forth in Scripture in plain sight to the disciples, but only the Lord Jesus embraced and believed those promises then. Paul taught in Romans 8 that without the Holy Ghost's power working in us, nobody can obey God. The natural man cannot please God. But if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit working in us so that we are not condemned, but God's righteousness is powerfully worked in us. Without regeneration, the natural man is an enmity with God, but the work of the Spirit makes us alive to God and works obedience in us and faith to trust in Christ and His gospel unto salvation. Without that Holy Ghost work in us, no one can obey or follow or believe or call upon God for mercy. That's because, as Jonah put it, salvation belongs to the Lord. And none of us by our own wills under our own steam can lay hold of it at all. Soon all the things that Christ preached about His own death and resurrection did take place, vindicating His belief in the Father's promises to Him. Just as His own Spirit had revealed to David 
and to Isaiah and to Zechariah. He was put to death, bearing our sins and making himself our sacrifice as God's lamb. At the Last Supper, Christ himself disclosed the purpose of his dying on the cross to make an offering for his people's sin, to shed his blood, to forgive us of our sins. But the wicked rulers mocked Christ for his trust in God and his obedience to God. They demanded that God deliver Christ from the cross if he were really the Son of God. They thought they were going to prove that Christ's work and faith in God would right there be crushed by their own evil machinations with the Roman tyrants. They knew that they had won. But Christ, in His humanity, was filled with the Holy Ghost. And He knew God's will and did it and was certain that He would save His people forever at Calvary. That very day, He knew God's promise to raise Him up was sure also. All the world's scoffing and unbelief could not disturb Christ and His certainty that His sacrifice would save us all who trust in Him. At this table, we celebrate what Jesus did for us and how what was promised to Him of olden times was shown to be the truth. He would not fail nor be discouraged, even though He was sorely distressed more than any man as He hung on the cross. When the Lord's people truly celebrate here, it is visible proof of our trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. This is just one way that God helps our unbelief by bringing us here each Lord's Day to remember the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus who went down to the depths of woe to redeem and to save us. Now we have no control over the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, faith to trust in the gospel. Either in ourselves or in other people, we have no control and no power to so order and direct the working of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul limits in the epistles in several places what natural sinful men can know. You recall we read this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he's writing to the Corinthians about how he preached the gospel to them and he did not use man's wisdom, but he demonstrated the spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's plenty of people who have faith in this or that thing based on the wisdom of men. If you trust the doctor that the antibiotic he gives you will heal you of your infection, then you have faith in the wisdom of man. But that is not of the same type and quality and origin of the faith that you must have in order to believe the gospel. That is a different type of faith entirely. It's a faith that is granted to you, that is given to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, the difference in trust in the gospel and trust in common ordinary things in this world is remarked upon and is drawn out by this text of Scripture. It says at verse 9, As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. And that's a quote from the Old Testament which Paul appropriates here. And then he says this, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. 
So notice that the things that God has prepared for those that love Him are things that natural people cannot grasp, cannot comprehend, cannot understand, cannot believe. Oh, they can understand what you claim God has prepared for us or them. You just can't trust in it, can't believe it. You know, you can understand the elements of a fairy tale, but you're not stupid enough to believe it, are you? Well, you see, the natural man, using his eyes, his ears, or thinking with his heart, can never see the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. But Paul says, they're revealed unto us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And then Paul uses a couple of verses here to describe how this should be reasonable to us, that even as humanly speaking, nobody can know what's in your heart and mind except your spirit can know. Now, we know the heart's deceitful, but he's comparing natural, everyday understanding and knowledge. And this is, of course, the problem is we may have good motives and ideas, and we may also have wicked motives and ideas. And, of course, the trick is to hide those things from the people around us. But we know, unless we're completely self-deceived, what is in our heart and what we are really plotting and scheming and what we really desire, even if we mask it to the outside world. And so he's making an analogy here. Even so, the Spirit of God knows all the things that are in the heart of God and conveys them to His people whom He loves. And we know the beauty of the indwelling of the Spirit, which is the way in which God knits our hearts together with Him in a way that is utterly and totally miraculous and that we cannot engender or mimic or copy in our own world. Now, you know, in our own world, people try to knit the hearts of other people to them by giving them gifts, by speaking words of kindness to them or even flattery, by making great oratorical speeches. And it appears that those things knit hearts together, but they rapidly dissipate but not so the knitting of the hearts and minds of the Lord's people unto Himself because He has given us the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost knows all the things that be of God because He is God. And He communicates those things which are needful to us and which are appropriate to us in a way that is not something that we can recreate in our own lives interacting with other people. And then he says in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Notice, we know the things that are given to us by God, by His grace, because we have received the Spirit of God. And that is how they are communicated to us. Which things also we speak. Now notice now he's talking about preaching. So they are communicated to us by preaching. And yet, that is not effective unless they're communicated by the Spirit also. So that the Word that is preached and the Word that the Spirit proclaims are the same thing in the hearts of those whom the Lord would save. Which things we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we're supposed to speak to one another according to what God has revealed in His Word, 
and by His Spirit has made real to us. But then look at verse 14. But the natural man. Now the natural man is the man who does not have the Spirit of God, who has not been worked on by the Spirit of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now this expresses an absolute inability of a natural man who has not been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit to know the things of the Spirit of God. Rather, he rejects them. Now that doesn't mean that he can't recite them, articulate them, even explain them, but he can't receive them. He can't believe them. He can't accept them as true. And he can't rely upon them unto salvation because he must be given the Spirit. The Spirit must work a work of conversion in him before he can discern these things. And this is in concert with what we have spoken of previously about the miraculous power and working of the Holy Spirit. In another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a, a very particular statement of inability by the natural man to articulate the truth about the Lord Jesus is given. And it's in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. And it begins with this really, really serious declaration. Wherefore, I give you to understand. This means that Paul wants us to mark this down and to think about it and to grasp a hold of it and to really understand the truth of what he's about to say. That no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now, he's not talking about merely repeating the words. He's talking about say it and believe it and rely upon it. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now, isn't that amazing? Because the Scriptures tell us if we shall confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God hath raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. But here Paul says no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So here is a very concrete example of one of the things that natural people cannot believe and receive without the work of the Holy Ghost. Now, heretical teachers will tell us, oh yeah, anybody can believe the Gospel. All they have to do is just decide to. It doesn't require any work of the Spirit. Why, just natural people, everybody can believe things if they want to. And there's no reason for the Spirit to have to come into a person's heart and change his mind and cause him to believe these things. But that's not what the Scriptures teach, is it? Jesus taught again that it takes a special work of God in a sinner's heart and mind to bring them unto the Savior. And we know these passages well. In John 6 at verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And here Jesus is saying that the gospel that he preaches, the word of salvation, that people should trust in Him unto eternal life, is the spiritual bread which received by faith causes us not to hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. But 
You've seen me in a lot of you don't believe, he said. Then he said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So here Jesus is telling us that it takes the Father's intervention by the Holy Spirit, as we learn in other places, to give to Christ so that we will come to Christ. Nobody can come to Christ unless the Father has given us to Him. This is an external work by God's Spirit in giving people unto Christ. And He's promised that He will save us and He will not turn us away. And then at verse 44, No man can come to Me except the Father which hath sent Me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. No man can come to Me except the Father which hath sent Me draw him and I will raise them up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. But notice, the teaching is by God to His people, and the hearing and the learning are the passive acts of the people to receive what God has told them. And how does He tell them this? Through His Spirit. And without that, Nobody will come to Him. There's a bar there. It requires the powerful working of God in the hearts of the people whom He will draw to Christ for them to come to Him. And all the ones that He gives to Christ will sooner or later come to Him. So there is a guarantee that if we've been given to Christ, then God will surely work by His mighty power to teach us and to draw us unto Christ. And then finally, in verse 63 of John chapter 6, we read this, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Notice, the Spirit quickens the hearts of dead men who don't believe at first. And it is by the words which Christ speaks that this quickening takes place. They are the Spirit. They are the life. He's trying to help them to understand the use of the metaphor of the body and the blood, which we've discussed so many times before. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray Him. And He said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto Me except it were given unto him of My Father. This is another statement of the fact that the Father gives to His people, the knowledge and the power to come to Christ, and it's done by the working of the Spirit, to cause the Lord's people to trust in the Lord Jesus and to come to Him and to be received by Him. And of course, we know well what Paul taught in Ephesians 2. You hath He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's our sins that make us dead, that make it, Not that we're unable to believe, but that we are unwilling to believe. It's a moral inability on our part that is brought upon us by our rebellion against God, our disobedience, our sins, so that we become dead to the promises of God, to the salvation of God. Dead to it. But then look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us together, that is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you're saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So here in this beautiful text, we notice the deadness and the regeneration brought by the Holy Ghost. And how the gift that's given to us is salvation and it's faith. Faith to receive the salvation. By grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. which is wrought in our hearts by the work of the Holy Ghost. It's not something we can generate on our own steam or that we can reason ourselves into. The gift of faith is given to us by God by the powerful working of the Holy Ghost in all the Lord's people. And without that spiritual work, no one can or will believe and be saved. And so we dare not miss the mighty power of God as described in Jonah, both toward His physical rescue of Jonah using the great fish, but far more importantly how God intent saved Nineveh by powerfully working in their minds and in their hearts to convict of their sin and to cause them to believe God's Word and therefore to call upon Him for mercy and deliverance. And if God can do that in the hopeless case of the wicked people of Nineveh who had no hope, no possibility of believing God's Word on their own steam and in their own wicked hearts. And yet God calls them to believe and to cry out for deliverance, and He delivered them. So we must always give thanksgiving and praise for the miracle of our own salvation. Not only the miracle and love shown in the Incarnation, where God's Lamb came down to save us by His sacrifice. That was a miracle. The incarnation, the virgin birth, that she should have conceived of the Holy Ghost, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, manifest in the flesh. And then that He should have lived the perfect life. And that He should have been taken to the cross and crucified. And that our sins should have been laid on Him. We can offer up however many offerings we want. We can make human sacrifices. We can pretend to offer ourselves in the place of others, but only by the power of God could our sins be laid on Jesus. That was the prerogative only of God, and He would not do so on any inferior or unworthy sacrifice, such as the animal sacrifices that we've talked about for many, many months now. No, the whole salvation of the Lord's people in the means that were used, that is the Lord Jesus and His offering on the cross. That was all a powerful miracle of God. But the miracle doesn't stop there. It's not just those miracles. It's also in our own lives and hearts where God taught us and brought us and drew us to Christ and gave us faith to believe and call upon Him. You see, all around from beginning to end, from first to last, it's God's power and lost men's helplessness to believe. And yet, in each of our hearts who have trusted, 
in the Lord Jesus, there is a powerful work done upon us to believe. And it is a continuing work. The Lord is faithful to keep us believing. Remember the Lord Jesus prayed for Peter's faith, even though he was tempted and even though he failed, that the Lord Jesus prayed for him to maintain his faith. And the Lord Jesus is interceding for us all to uphold the miracle of our faith. More powerful than God sending a great fish to save Jonah from a watery grave, as powerful as God's converting work in the hearts of wicked Nineveh to believe in His Word and call upon Him. You know, we like to think ourselves much more sweet and innocent compared to the wicked people of Nineveh. We have not started any wars that we know of. We have not raped, murdered, and pillaged whole nations. We have not offered animal sacrifices to idols like they did, demons like they did. We are much more innocent and sweet than they were. But the fact of the matter is we were just as lost and helpless and hopeless as they were in our hearts and minds. We're just as dead as they were, just as blind as they were, just as incapable as they were of believing on the promise of the Lord's salvation. And so that any of us do, and the fact that we do, is an astounding work, astounding miracle. It does prove what Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. And as soon as you start thinking that salvation belongs to you, or what you think, or what you did, or how you were smarter than everybody else, or more humble than everybody else, or more thoughtful than everybody else, or more loving toward God than anybody else, then you've missed the whole point of the power of God and what it means for salvation to belong to the Lord. Now the Holy Ghost, we must pray, will work in those we love who have not yet believed that they too might be brought to repentance and faith. Because we can't bring them to faith. We can tell them the Gospel. We can urge them to believe. But without the Spirit work, all of that is of no avail. And yet, in our own hearts, we know, or if we think we should know, how hopeless a case it was that we should believe, that we should trust, that we should be saved. And I hope next week to say something about an example that the Lord Jesus gave us in John chapter 20 and to talk a little bit more about the impossibility of natural people to believe the gospel and how strange it is to us because we believe the gospel and it seems so true and obvious to us. And yet there was a time when it didn't, but praise God, He worked in us to great efficiency to believe and trust. And I thought of the words of that hymn, which is the exhortation to the lost and to us all for the rest of our lives, the exhortation to trust in and believe in the promises of God. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. For Jesus shed His precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way, that leads you into rest. Believe in Him without delay and you are fully blessed. Only trust Him.
Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. And at the Lord's table, we rejoice at what the Lord did for us. Externally and internally. Externally in the offering up of His Son on the cross to take our place and to purge our sin and internally in our hearts to cause us to know our sin, to know the fear of judgment, to flee to the Savior, to cry out to Him for mercy. And He never turns away or casts out anyone who calls upon Him, who comes to Him and believes. And let's give thanks for the Lord's table, for the bread first that pictures His body which was broken for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You have given us Your Son and that You have brought Him to the point of sacrifice through an infinite web of miracles and mighty power which is only slightly described to us in Your Word, which we can only imagine going out throughout the ages what it took in order that You should prepare a sacrifice, prepare Your Lamb to be slain on Calvary's tree in our place and for our crimes. We thank You that it was proclaimed that the Lord Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we thank You that He went with His face set like flint to Jerusalem to be made a sacrifice for His people. We thank You that He withstood all the slander and all the mocking and all the jeers, that none of that could shake His obedience to Your will and His understanding that what had been revealed to the prophets by His own Spirit in times past, He would certainly and fully achieve. That there was no way at all that His purpose and Your purpose in His death could be overthrown, that He would surely bring to pass the saving of His people by His offering. And we thank You that He left us this feast, that He did it in anticipation of victory and success, complete success and victory, and that He was thereby exhibiting His faith in the promises, in His humanity, in the promises that had been made in the Scriptures beforehand and that He had repeated. And we thank You that He did accomplish that sacrifice and that You raised Him in power and glory because He was obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Thank You for this bread that He left us to picture and to celebrate the body that was torn and slain for us. And that in that body, not in this bread, but in that body which it points to is all our hope and all our joy and all our happiness and all the salvation that we desperately need. And thank You that one day we will see Him in His beauty, and we will shout praises and glory to Him who loved us so. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it, and He broke it and He said, Take it, eat. This is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sin. 
And the scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. The scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and sing number 91. In the black book, my Redeemer, oh, what beauties in that lovely name appear. None but Jesus in His glories shall the honored title wear. My Redeemer, my Redeemer, Thou hast my salvation wrought. Number 91.